Josh Hafner moved from Kansas City, where he had written for a local alt-weekly paper, to Iowa in 2011, fresh out of school, to cover the Iowa caucuses for the Des Moines Register. During that election, he covered Herman Cain and later rode on Rick Perry's bus. Before Trump was an official candidate for the GOP nomination in early 2015, Josh was assigned to cover him, along with Rand Paul, his original assignment. This work included interviewing Trump in person twice during the Iowa caucus lead-up events. Just prior to the Iowa caucuses of 2016, he was hired by USA Today, where he writes today on politics, health, social issues, and other topics. Beyond reporting just the events of the day, Josh has spent a lot of time thinking about media diet, what the media is, how the internet has changed the way that we absorb and take in information and news. And that's mostly what we're going to get into in this conversation today. So, Josh, let's start by talking about the GOP primary, a topic that I really haven't gotten into with anybody. We've gotten some space between then and now, and we've also had about 120 days of a Trump presidency with a Republican-controlled House and Senate. But take me back to spring of last year when you were covering the primaries. At that time, what stood out to you? about this 2016 GOP primary? So I started covering uh, the primaries in, in January of, of 2015. An important part of, of anything I say in this conversation is that my the entirety of my perspective is through this prism of, of Iowa, which is a specific place, obviously, culture, and through the Iowa caucuses. I'm not based in D.C. I'm, I've always been based here in, in Des Moines. And so the first event that I recall covering was at this beautiful old theater called Hoyt Sherman Place, and it was sort of a parade of prospective candidates, none of none of which had announced yet, but it was folks like Scott Walker, it was folks like Donald Trump. And I think at, at the beginning, you know, if as you'll recall, in terms of candidates, it was it was loaded with talent. I mean, no matter what your, your niche was within the Republican Party, there were, you know, so many candidates to choose from. You had Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, Marco Rubio, Ben Carson, Christie. Um, and these guys all kind of represented different facets of the GOP. And in a lot of them, their stock had been kind of rising for years at that point after the whole Tea Party thing got into gear. And I think that was really exciting for Republicans here in Iowa, at least no matter kind of what, what your stripe was. And then on the other side, you had basically Hillary Clinton. And for a long, long time, that was it. And so that seemed that was the biggest disparity that struck me initially was uh, Republicans uh, and those engaged with the with the caucuses here in Iowa uh, seemed more energized, more optimistic, uh, more hyped. It's interesting because that that plurality of uh, candidates possibly ended up hurting the GOP process, but at that time, it probably didn't. It didn't feel like that. It felt like so many talented people against maybe a fairly weak candidate in Hillary Clinton. Right. You remember when Clinton did her first foray in the, the, the Scooby van across the United States, and she ended up here in Iowa, as I recall, on, on, on that first jaunt. And that received you know insane media coverage and hype. But really, outside of that, the entirety of, of the discussion was, was on these Republican candidates. And, and like you said, you know, Trump happened. You know, and I think that kind of exposed how widely um, so many talented, both GOP organizers, folks who were in politics here in the state, and, and voters had, had split themselves across so many candidates. And Trump managed to speak to a certain audience, and he managed to endure with, with help from, from journalists and TV networks, obviously, as well. And, and, and that shifted the story, obviously. Yeah. I asked Josh when he thought it just might be possible that the entire or the majority of the GOP base would be fine with Trump, and he told me that two moments stood out to him. The first was when Trump said that John McCain wasn't a war hero, that he preferred those who didn't get captured, and the second was when Trump said that he never asked God for forgiveness for anything he had done. But what's crazy is Josh was actually in the room when Trump made both of those statements which were during the same event in Iowa. So I asked him, what was the reaction in the room when Trump made those statements? 
I don't remember hearing any audible gasp. There certainly wasn't any booze or anything like that. Even when he said, you know, the comment about John McCain, which in some, you know, circles, war heroes are, are more sacred than, than your theology. But there was folks who, who laughed at the John McCain comment. Sometimes you laugh when there's an awkward moment, you know, that, that happens. But, but no, I don't remember any, any reaction in, in the room to that. And um, I remember thinking when he said that he had never asked God for forgiveness for anything as he's trying to work for the votes of, of these evangelical uh, conservatives here in the state, um, I remember thinking that's the story. And then, you know, a few minutes later, uh, the McCain uh, comment happened, as I recall. And, and my editor was like, you're not writing about that. You're writing about this. But does that make sense? I mean, it's hard. To, it might be hard to imagine here in the state how we not every GOP candidate plays ball here in, in Iowa. John Huntsman came, I think, all of one time in the, you know, the 2012 cycle. This time around, Kasich wasn't wasn't around much. You know, uh, it's a very specific. I mean, Rick Santorum won it, you know, in, in 2012. So it's it's a uh, certain candidates tend to play ball here a little bit more. But if you do decide to play ball here, I mean, that was a room that you want to uh, deign to a, a little bit and, and and try to connect with. And he seemingly did the opposite of that. And it didn't really seem like folks batted much of an eye. And so that's when I, I sensed a bit of a shift. In your mind, did what happened in the GOP in 2016, does that represent like a significant shift in the GOP? Like, do we know more about what happened now than we did then? Well, if you remember back after Mitt Romney lost in 2012, Priebus, uh, who's now in the Trump administration at that point, was the chief of the party. They came out with a report that was, I don't remember what the official name was, but it was colloquially, it was referred to informally as uh, the GOP postmortem, an election yeah, postmortem. Yeah, the autopsy. Where yeah. they did this, yeah, yeah, they did this study looking at, you know, what went wrong and what do we have to do to win in 2016? And the main takeaways from that, uh, as I recall, were increasing outreach to women, increasing outreach to African Americans, increasing outreach to Hispanics increasing outreach to gay voters, supporting comprehensive immigration reform. And one might argue that the candidate they ended up nominating did not necessarily uh, adhere to any of those efforts that they proposed and thought that they needed to do. And they yeah, won the presidency. The, uh, the opposite. So what yeah. <laughs> what, is that, what, is that, what, is it, what does that do when your voters nominate a candidate who is ostensibly on paper the direct opposite of what you think your party needs, you got to rally around the guy because it's what the people put up. And then you win. What does that do to your party in the after effect? And, and they're still experiencing that after effect. They're experiencing the after effect of that this week right now in, in Washington. Um, we're not done experiencing that. But um, I think it represented a total, I mean, they, they thought they were going to zig and they ended up zagging. It was like, uh, yeah, I think it was nothing anyone could, could foresee and certainly not what they had planned on. I think you could definitely make the case that the fervor of the evangelical vote wasn't quite as high as the fervor of, let's say, the Rust Belt vote for Trump. But because he was able to get that group so thoroughly, even though they kind of held their nose at him emotionally, that it was the evangelicals who ended up getting Trump elected. And even as his approval ratings have dipped into the 30s nationwide, the evangelical support is still standing pretty strong. So a question I keep asking myself is, how much does someone's religion actually inform their identity, and how much is their identity formed by other things? For instance, an evangelical Christian on the right who spends three hours a day watching Fox News, maybe their identity is actually Fox News or formed by Fox News, and then they interpret their Christianity in light of what they see there. Same goes for the left, somebody who identifies as a Christian or even a Buddhist, but they're really a politically far-left liberal reading Democracy Now! and Occupy Democrats all day. Is that really who they are, or do they just view their religion through the lens of their political identity? Meaning, are they really a Christian or a Buddhist, or does that really get at who they are? So I asked Josh, of all the people he interviewed and spent time with, how did their identities come into play? I remember reading there was a there's a fascinating article. Uh, folks who are listening to this podcast, if you're interested, can Google it. It was published in the Des Moines Register by my colleague at the time. His name's Mike Kylan, and the headline of the article 
is why fewer rural Iowans are going to church. And it was published in 2015, so fall of 2015, kind of in the midst of this whole caucus process here, here in Iowa. And it was super fascinating because what it delved into was declining church attendance in rural parts of the state and conceptions of, of, of community in, in small town Iowa. And, and I imagine it might not be so different you know, in Ohio as it is here in Iowa or Indiana or other states that here in the Midwest. But essentially what he found was that in the, you know, in the age of the internet, folks were being exposed to new ideas, new identities that had not been previously accessible to them, perhaps because of geographical proximity, um, et cetera. And they were beginning to question traditions, you know, that they perhaps might've been held, you know, passed on to them, you know, through, through their parents or whatever, or their community, their city, uh, they're beginning to question things that, you know, maybe previously in generations they would not have, have thought to or had the uh, information to arm themselves with to question. But essentially folks were saying, you know, maybe, you know, I don't believe in God and maybe I don't need to go to church. But, you know, if, you, if you've grown up in a small town, I grew up in a smaller town, 14,000 people, but not as small as some of these towns I'm talking about. But the church is the center, it's the nexus of community, you know. And it's where you need to be if you want to find a, a girl to date, if you're in high school or, or what, you know, things is non, you know, quote unquote, non-religious is that. But what he found was folks were starting to gather at, at gas station coffee shops on Sunday mornings instead of churches. And that replaced this kind of ritual tendency for, for community. And so your, your question uh, is, is super interesting because I think – Ooh, I don't want to make a, a broad statement here, but I think to see a candidate like Trump who maybe touched on some issues that they were passionate about, but maybe in some ways shrugged off some of the evangelical uh, language, maybe gave, maybe resonated with with voters here in the state who who might have been doing the same. Yeah, interesting. He maybe Trump exposed a bit of a dichotomy between. Christian identity and urban identity versus rural identity or, you know, conservative versus liberal identity that actually held greater purchase on people's hearts and minds than their religious identity per, that they would maybe claim would, or you, a religious person say would say ought to more inform mm-hmm. their identity. Mm-hmm. Maybe he gave per- people permission right. to, uh, to be a little more real with themselves in that way. Yeah. I don't know if I answered your question. Well, no, I mean, it's, I don't know if there is an answer to that question. You know, I, I've told a story before of, um, of going to this church service in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where on the 4th of July, uh, at a kind of a evangelical mega church. And the, the sermon was all about how Obama was ruining the country basically. And how could that guy have written that sermon? Right. I mean, the the fact is to write a sermon like that he believed it was more important on sunday morning to tell his congregation how obama was ruining the country than it was to tell them how jesus responded to a tax collector or how paul exhorted the corinthians to love one another he thought it was more pressing to talk about obama and and say what you will about whether he was wrong or right in his actual analysis. But the fact that he thought that was important tells you something about his identity or what he thinks his vocation is as a pastor or something like that. And that reminds me of uh, a little bit of what we're talking about. It seems to me that a lot of it is based on, you know, some level of, of, of cultural identity, if not spiritual identity, if that makes sense. And sometimes the line between that can be blurry. I know, but uh, I think, you know, hypothetically, maybe you can have some folks who, who feel like this identity, be it cultural or spiritual, is being attacked, uh, is being oppressed on both sides. And by that, I mean, from my perspective here in the Midwest, from Hollywood or from New York and D.C. or whatever. And and then you have some folks who are saying, you know what, I maybe I never really believed this to begin with. You know, the folks that you were talking about a few minutes ago who were able to kind of shed that like snake skin and, and be who they who they really are. And maybe they resonated more with a candidate like a Donald Trump than they did with a, a Rick Santorum or 
you know, someone who, uh, or Ted Cruz who, who basically preached sermons with a little bit of like, he, he put so much, Josh and I talked a lot more about evangelicals and identity and the coastal elites and all of that stuff. And if you want to hear the full conversation, you can check out the unedited version of this episode. Most of the stuff that got cut was in the first 40 minutes or so of that unedited conversation. But I wanted to shift the conversation with Josh to a different topic. So I asked Josh, what is the media? I saw a tweet from, gosh, another guy who's been on this podcast. I've liked a lot of your guests. Apparently you're lately, a big Depolarized including... fan. I appreciate that. Yeah. Everyone listen to Depolarized <laughs> if you aren't currently right now. Uh, David Dark sent out a tweet one time that was basically like, there is no media. No, the media. I think it, at least it might have been. And I think that's true. I don't think there is any cohesive hive mind, at least that that I am aware of. And I've participated in publications, granted non-television, so print digital publications from, you know, my college newspaper to working city hall beats and cops beats to covering uh, the president and, and the Iowa caucuses here from Iowa. And I think people give us, a, you know, with the short staff as newsrooms are these days, we don't have time to coordinate in the often nefarious ways that that journalists are, are, are often accused or presumed to be working in. Okay, so you're, you're responding to basically that, like, there is some sort of um, unspoken agreement between members of the media to present the news with a liberal slant or something like that. Sure. Or, I mean, or conservative slant, you know, depending if you, if you work for Fox news or, you know, perhaps a, you know, more conservative publication or something like that. But there's, yeah, but typically, right. It's like the media is saying this, the media is liberal. The media is pushing this story. It like almost as though, Every journalist gets an email, you know, at 6 a.m. saying, hey, guys, this <laughs> Here's is what we're rallying around today. for today, yeah. Oh, my God. None of us have time for that. <laughs> we're just trying to get stories in on deadline. Um, so what does – so then, okay, just, just give us a little bit of how the sausage is made. Let's say – so you were at that event, right? And Trump said two incredibly inflammatory things, the John McCain thing and the never ask for forgiveness thing. How does it get decided – that the John McCain thing was more widely shared. I mean, I eventually heard both of those statements, but at the time, it sounds like you were saying the McCain thing definitely dominated the news cycle for however long. How does that happen? Is, does that happen organically? Does that happen because of the clicking, listening, and, and channel surfing habits of news consumers? Like, what is the actual thing driving what ends up at the top of the news charts on a given day or week? Yeah, I mean, digital metrics are a real thing. And certainly every news organization worth their salt is watching what readers are interested in and trying to provide them with, with coverage to some extent of, of what they are you know, indicating a need or, or an interest in. But in a situation like you're referring to with the Trump event, I mean, it's not like we had any prior coverage on those statements online to get any censor idea of, of whether right. that story would get traction, right? it's two statements by the same candidate at the same event. <laughs> within yeah. An, yeah, within an 40 minutes or whatever of each other. And so immediately after that's over, I'm kind of bewildered for a few different reasons, but I grab my laptop, we hustle down to this like murky, musty basement where they're doing the press gaggle with Trump. He goes down and he's fielding some questions and you could start to get some sense. You could triangulate a little bit on at least, you know, what your colleagues, you know, might have in the meet, you know, other journalists might have thought was interesting based on the questions they ask, you know, in a, a press conference, of course. You can watch live stream Sean Spicer's daily press briefings and, and get an idea of, of how that process works and how that uh, unfolds. But for me, from my perspective, was that uh, we have had. You know, there's a lot of Americans who do not ask for forgiveness from God, a lot of voters, you know, and that was shocking in the context that we were in a room full of evangelicals. But I think far fewer Americans, whether you're, it doesn't matter if you're atheist, agnostic, Christian, or whatever, would say that uh, a guy who was a prisoner of war for years yeah. is a war hero. Yeah. Is not a war yeah, hero. Right. Yeah. And it should not have gotten caught, you know, and there's some jokes that came out that actually mixed both of those you know, quotes together 
And I, I forget what, I feel like it was a meme of some type. And it was basically Jesus on the cross with Donald Trump's quote superimposed over it saying, I like people who don't do God. <laughs> oh, that's so dark. <laughs> that statement was, it involved another well-respected candidate. And they had been in a bit of a tiff at that point, as I recall anyways. So we, you kind of go through gut. And I'm, you know, in that time, I think you know that was most of the coverage that day. But it's not atypical for two journalists to cover the same speech and come away thinking two different things were were interesting, especially if there's not a press conference afterward, you know, wherein you can sort of triangulate and be like, oh, I missed that point, but I noticed that the guy from uh, the Wall Street Journal picked that up. Does that right. make sense? You mentioned Fox News, and, and you said kind of like it's not even necessarily that all the time that writers or editors at Fox News are even thinking about a partisan lens, and yet they're, of course, they're viewed that way. What are we what are we kind of misunderstanding about even an organ like Fox News, at least non-editorial side, just just sort of the regular news side? What, what do people misunderstand about how decisions are made there? I think that we have a tremendous if I could take this a bit broader, I think we have a tremendous media literacy problem in the United States. And it's converging from two different fronts. So you have folks who are my parents' age, perhaps baby boomers. I'm going to make some generalizations here, so please like, let me state that up front. But you have folks who perhaps did not grow up on the internet, who are encountering news on the internet for the first time, not first time, but are getting acclimated to it. And that news is being presented in a different way than they grew up with it being presented, which was perhaps in a newspaper, which perhaps had an entire separate page that was clearly labeled opinion or editorial. And then you also, from the other side, have people my age or younger who did not grow up understanding a division of news content and editorial content in the format that older generations grew up with. It They're used to seeing whatever pops into their Twitter feed or Snapchat or whatever. And not understanding that that wall perhaps even ever existed or should exist. And maybe, you know, you can argue that it shouldn't. But there is a mass confluence, I think, of media illiteracy from two different sides. And that enables us to see the same issues or even coverage on these issues, the same article even, I think, in, in totally different ways. What do you mean that the same article? You mean that people on the left and people on the right could could read the same CNN article, for instance, and take away different things from it? Well, first off, in, in a social media environment, I think too often we presume that people read much more than, than the headline. Yeah. A friend was just telling me about a study where they, now I, I don't remember if this was on the show or just a buddy of mine, where they like, they did a study where they wrote up an article that had a headline, a subheadline, and a photo. But then when you clicked on it, it had two paragraphs of real text and then like 12 paragraphs of gibberish. And they were trying to figure out, you know, compared to a similar article, how many people would share it. And like so many people shared it with that obviously did not click it. And they shared it because they already agreed with whatever it was saying, which is not totally what you're talking about, but go on. Right. But yeah, yes. So um, you could see an article, a headline coming to your feed that says, you know, Donald Trump is is not fit to be president. And that could have been published by the editorial board of, of a newspaper. And that, you know, the way that works is, you know, we have an editorial board at USA Today. We had one at the Des Moines Register when I wrote there. Every newspaper has one. Those guys are in a totally different office, usually on a different floor of the building. You don't run into them. You don't talk to them. When I was at the Des Moines Register, the big question was, who's the register going to endorse this year, right? And they used to send back in, you know, in the pre-internet days, campaigns and, and politicos used to send folks down to the printing press to try to catch a glimpse at, you know, the first pages to, so they would know who the register was was oh going gosh. to endorse. So right? little communication it, within the organization. Yeah. 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 And so, I, you know, when the register endorsed Mitt Romney uh, several years ago, that was, you know, everyone, you know, was blown away yada, yada, yada. But I had no idea, you know, before anyone else, I got the same push alert at the same time that, that everyone else did. 
And so I think people, so there's not even, I mean, there's a very clear and intentional wall between news reporters, editorial, but that wall is not, there's no equivalent representation uh, or manifestation of that in the digital space. So apparently Josh has like a working theory about all of this, and he calls it the Josh Hafner hierarchy of media consumption. We're going to learn about it, and we might call it the JHH from time to time. These are generalizations, but I think typically it is better to listen to your news than it is to watch your news, and it's better to read your news than it is to listen to your news. Okay, so tell us why. Let's get that going. Well, if... So much of, of, I think, what folks are referring to when they collectively say, quote unquote, the media, they're not talking about the sports reporter covering the high school game for their local newspaper, although they're certainly like that's he's certainly getting corralled into that collective judgment. So oftentimes they're talking about cable network news. I think that looms in the minds of so many people as representing, quote unquote, the media, you know, whether it's CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. And so much of, of what it takes to fill that 24-hour gap, as, as everyone knows, is a ton of analysis. And in the same way as that wall of between analysis and editorial and actual news reporting has not made the jump from newspapers to the internet, I don't think it's made an entirely clear jump to television either. And so I was, I was talking with a friend of mine, and he was, he's my age, and he was like, well, how CNN is, is completely biased. They're, they're entirely liberally biased. And, and you know, folks can make arguments and have opinions on, on all matter of things. But I asked him why. And he said it was because he was saying that it was because Donna Brazil was, was uh, hired as a reporter for CNN. And I said, well, was she hired as a reporter or was she hired as a political analyst? And then it was just kind of silence, right? And CNN has a real staff of, of actual reporters who are out in the field doing great work, doing, I think, to the best of their ability, uh, objective reporting. And their stories are typically going up on CNN.com, and sometimes they do on camera hits. But CNN also has a whole flight of folks who used to work for Trump or who used to work or whatever, and they're on their talking. Corey Lewandowski it was hired on yes. as a as an analyst. Does that make CNN super far right? No, no more than if the Wall Street Journal published an editorial from from Bernie Sanders, you know, on their opinion page, right? And but people just don't grasp that, and and I think that the ratings have have borne out that that commentary and analysis does really well for these networks, as it it does for digital publications as well, in some regards, and so. I think that uh, it's easier to, you know, to to tell what kind of content you're consuming if you if you move to uh, a format when you're reading it. Hopefully, you can scroll to the top and see some kind of indicator. But I think, you know, if it's better to, to listen to your news than it is to watch it, better to read it than it is to listen to it. I think it's better to read it in print than it is to to read it online, because. Trying to keep up with the news in a digital space is like begging to drink from a fire hose, and it's impossible. And not everything, everything can be presented, like you said, in a timeline with equal weight and equal validity, uh, even if that's entirely inaccurate to, to reality. But if you, if you get a daily printed newspaper, they have to think. I mean, it's a it's a matter of economy. They have to think what is the most important story that day. How do we graphically represent that for our readers so they understand? You know, how do, how can we present that in a way that can can show kind of proportions? How can we show them that this is news and this is opinion? Or even you know, if you if you subscribe to I don't if I wasn't in the news business, if I had a job uh, in some field that didn't require me to be hyper on top of the news like my current job does, you know, I would tell people. I don't care if you subscribe to the New Yorker or, or to the Economist, whether it's something that editorial, you know, their editorial board's more liberal or, or more conservative. But like, get some subscribe to a publication, read from a publication where they have to pick and choose and and, and judge what they're presenting to you, because um, so oftentimes internet news sites and, and, and certainly. Uh, cable news, it's it's just nonstop and they have to, to fill that with, with something. So it's interesting. You you went somewhere uh, that I am really in tune with. Um, I've said this before. My, my news consumption, I have backed way off. 
I get the New York Times daily briefing email in the evening, which is exactly what you're talking about. They have to winnow the day down to nine to 11 stories. And then I have an economist subscription, which I do a sort of a poor job of reading, but sometimes, especially if I'm flying or whatever, I'll read most of an economist. So I totally agree with that. The fact that they have to figure out what fits in here and that they're professionals at that. And if they do a poor job, they'll lose money because someone else will have synthesized it better than they did. And then people will read that instead. But where I wanted to go was, is there a sense in which maturity on the part of the reader is required for a healthy media diet? And what I mean by that is reading a scathing opinion piece you know, about the Trump dossier documents and maybe he like peed on a prostitute in a hotel. Like that is just so much more satisfying. Or even like Maggie Haberman's stuff about the behind the scenes in the White House of like Trump in a bathrobe, you know, TikTok. Yeah. Like watching TV news in the glow, you know, watching Fox news glowing, lighting up his face. Getting two scoops of ice cream while everyone else only gets warm. That stuff is so, it feels so good. It's like eating chocolate to read those pieces, but like just reading a, here are the facts about the North Korean situation is probably a better use of my time to read straight reporting, but does it require maturity of me as a reader to seek out the articles that are straight reporting the facts and, and no analysis when the analysis is so much more uh, emotionally gratifying? What I mean to say is you went the way of read your news from this kind of a source because they do a lot of this work, but isn't there a personal responsibility element here to you as a reader or listener or viewer? Think of it like a grocery store. Like, not every shopper is going to go and pick up a box and look on the back and read the ingredients that are on there. But the food companies should provide that information. And I think that uh, a shopper should be curious about that information, ideally. So they, they both need to be moving towards each other kind of on that front. And, and so, like... We talk about a lot of times when I was at the Des Moines Register and we'd be deciding what stories we're going to go and print the next day. They talk about a mix of having, you know, meat, potatoes, vegetables, sugar, you know, dessert or whatever, almost like a diet. And I think that, you know, in general, something else I'd put, you know, in, in these, this hierarchy of media or whatever consumption is that make sure that the news you consume, if you're someone who's interested in the ingredients, is as boring as possible. Yeah, nu- yes, <laughs> nutritious and boring, right. Make sure you're picking up the oat bran flakes. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, because if, if you taste it like, mm, this is sweet, and you're like, oh my God, I'm eating Captain Crunch Oops All Berry. What am I doing to myself? <laughs> yeah, totally. You know when you're consuming it, you can get a hint for the ingredients. But if you really want to know what's in it, then start to look at the ingredients. And so when you're consuming news, it's like this. It's, uh, okay, what is this publication called that I'm reading the story on? Some people don't even ask that. They don't scroll top and say, well, what is this? Where, where is this coming from? Another question is, is the byline of the reporter named on the story? Do they name their sources? And even very reputable news organizations will still report stories, a lot of these TikTok ones you're talking about, through anonymous sources. That doesn't mean they're wrong, but that does mean that they should be read with a couple steps back of yeah it's uh, it's taking it with a grain of salt if you were on a jury and you know he you don't allow hearsay into a jury like um it doesn't count as evidence in a courtroom and so you should kind of treat it with a similar skepticism if there's if it's just anonymous whereas if people are willing to go on the record and put their name on something then they might have nefarious motives, but there are consequences if they're wrong. Yes, right. And the the consequences are what's missing from so much of what is actually fake news, i.e. guys in overseas running websites yeah, that Pizza are Gate, to right. stoke exactly and not fake news by by the definition that our, our current president. Okay, is so I have two thoughts on this grocery store analogy. Number one is I had already decided to call this episode a balanced media diet with Josh Hafner. <laughs> And then you called it a diet and gave that example of like the newsroom actually thinking like, hey, you know, give people a complete plate of news ingredients, which is amazing. 
synergy, man. You and me, same page. And then the second thing that it makes me think of is I was just on um, the Break It Down podcast with, with Matt Carter, and we were talking about, I have this kind of circular diagram that I'm kind of working out where you start at the top, you're an individual, you're absorbing news, you have confirmation bias, which then brings you to the bottom. Now you're in a group and that confirmation bias helps you find your people. Now that you're with your people, you have like group identity bias and group homogeneity effect and whatever. And then you're going back to being yourself. And since you're in a group, all the social media platforms have algorithms to figure out what articles to give you when you log back on. And then it ends up being this vicious cycle. I'm not sort of painting a very good picture here, but confirmation bias and group identity and social media algorithms all combine to sort of steer you in a direction rather than many directions. What Matt Carter came up with, which I thought was brilliant, is it's like, think about if your refrigerator was like that. And I was like, okay, so if my refrigerator knew what I wanted and gave it to me all the time and like wanted me to rate my refrigerator's food selection very highly, imagine there's no money involved. I would just open it up and it would be milkshakes and cheeseburgers and like really good granola bars and beer and a nice bottle of scotch. And I would just like go, well, that's what's here. You would never want someone to say, well, fridge is full of uh, fast food. I I guess I better just eat that all the time. You'd say, and not only that, but you're reaching into the fridge and you're saying, here, you need to try this milkshake and you're giving it to your friends and family. Oh, so now we have another level. Okay, so what we were talking about was sort of breaking the cycle at the point of delivery. Like, don't let Facebook decide what news you're going to consume. Be intentional about it. And then you're going one step further. Be intentional what you sh- about what you share because it's going to go to a bunch of people and you don't want to be irresponsible with that. And, and I think that what you share informs the refrigerator and the algorithm as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. What you have shared then will, yes, that's good. So you, it's, it's kind of like, a, you know, people who are trying to break bad habits and then they, they try and do positive reinforcement. Um, <laughs> it's sort of like every time I eat a salad, I should share that on Facebook and then maybe someone else will eat a salad and then maybe I'll get more salads delivered to me by my Facebook refrigerator. Now I'm mixing all the metaphors up, but no, I, I get it. And, and, but really, if you really, maybe if I'm understanding you right, if you really want to break the cycle or at least weaken it, or, or then you got to go off the grid, quit using refrigerators and start like storing your food underground or whatever, some other preservation system. By that, I mean, there is no algorithm when you read the economist in print, they don't understand the economist will never know that you lingered you know, for 30 minutes over, you know, a lighter piece toward the front of the book instead of you only spent four minutes on the heavy analysis of, of uh, you know, what's happening right now in Syria in, in the far back. And so they will continue then objectively as they did in the age before the Internet to think critically and, and think, all right, as, as, as journalists professionally, you know, what, what do we think is, is most important? And, you know, a lot of times that's how it used to be. The, the journalist in that sense was the nutritionist. And you would, every night you tune in and you say, Walter Cronkite, what are we having for dinner? I trust you. So it's obviously easy for me to see how cable news can be a bit uh, unhealthy if we want to use the diet metaphor further, a lot of sugar or a lot of carbs or something. But when Josh was talking about the editorial process that goes into the Times or the Washington Post or something, I thought, well, what about the nightly news now on major networks? Wouldn't that represent a similar editorial process and also an editorial board who wants to make sure that both liberals and conservatives can digest their news without overtly reacting to it as being partisan. In my own subjective opinion, as a professional journalist and as a hyper-news consumer, I would agree with that statement. Okay, well then just why? Because there's there's economy at work there, right? As you said. So the NBC Nightly News with, with Lester Holt is self-contained in that he knows that far more people are probably going to be tuning in for 
So you think you can dance or whatever. I don't even know if that's an NBC show. But for something, you know, later on in primetime there after him, he has a very limited slot. And outside of a special breaking news happening or, or, you know, a certain interview that they dedicate more time to, they have they have to choose very carefully what they think the biggest stories are. And it comes from a more, I think it seems to be, how do I say this? It's, they seem to come from a presumption that the folks tuning in for the nightly news are like normal people and not rabid news consumers that might be more inclined to tune in to, to Fox news for, for four hours every night okay. or MSNBC for four hours every Does night. Does that translate to them being more centrist and less, less partisan or is it more, does it more translate to sort of the, the granularity, the detail of the content? I think it certainly translates to the granularity. I'm not sure whether that would have, you know, a, a pro or con in, in their objectivity um, or, or centrism. I'm inclined to, to view, you know, nightly news presentations as, as being more centrist than uh, what we would consider, you know, MSNBC or Fox, which have very clear public perceptions of being uh, right or left. Yeah, I think if you had to look for a reason, you would simply say, well, because the networks uh, do not choose all their other programming based on partisan views. And so therefore they would not be incentivized for their nightly news program to be such because they don't want, they don't want their nightly news program to basically make people stop watching, you know, Mike and Molly or whatever, because they're perceived as liberal coastal elites, nor the other way around, you know? So I, I mean, that could be it. And I don't watch a lot of network nightly news, so I'm not giving an opinion. I'm just asking you yours. Yeah. Just yeah. to be clear here. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody. <laughs> I want to push back one more time on this hierarchy. So let's say someone is like, okay, I just read a little bit or I I just watch the 30-minute news segment or whatever. Okay, I think of a movie where there's a food crisis or a whatever going on in like a sub-Saharan African country or in a Balkan country or something. And there's like that scene where the reporter's there and they're like, this will be on the news tonight, right? And they're like, no, I mean, I'll try, but Americans won't care. And then it cuts to like an American family watching the news and it's like a squirrel on a water ski or something. And and the idea being that like there's some limit of time and care in the American viewing or news consuming public that if you just stick to the meat and potatoes and the 30 minutes or the first five pages of the New York Times or whatever people have time for that's been really well curated, then aren't there all these stories that will slip through the cracks that will then cost people lives or, or, or well-being? This is kind of a devil's, devil's advocate argument. But what would you say to that? Uh, I think that in 2017, the media – and by media, I don't mean the news media, which I don't believe exists as a cohesive unit – but just there's so many media options to consume, whether news, entertainment, et cetera, that a newspaper like USA Today or a network like CNN or is not just competing against news organizations. You're competing against Netflix. You're competing against Xbox Live. You're competing against any, any, any of the myriad you know ways that, that we've come up with in the internet age. Craft to, breweries. Yeah, to anything to eliminate boredom. You know, boredom doesn't exist anymore in the way that you and I were bored as kids growing up, you know, in the eighties or, or nineties. So we have more things than ever to fill up that plate of concern with where it used to be when my father was growing up, you had two or three channels and all of them every night, you know, we're going to be delivering the news into your home and you didn't have tumblers or, uh, Reddit to get lost on or anything like that. You had uh, books to read. You had to read guys like Hemingway or whatever that was sitting on the shelf, or you had a daily newspaper that was delivered to your home, maybe a magazine. Um, and so the options have just have, have, have so shifted. And I, yeah, I can, I totally agree with you, your, your analysis at that point. Okay. Well, so we're getting close to wrapping up here. And so I want to ask you my kind of, parting question phrased tailored to our conversation. So I want to ask you about the right and the left. When a person on the right, an average person on the right is tailoring their media diet, where are they going wrong? And what, what could they do to 
to fix that? Then I will ask you the same for the left. I think you are going wrong if you are only consuming news that, I mean, this, I can, you know, I might be able to answer both of those questions in, in one swoop, but if you are only consuming news that is basically getting you jacked, whether it's making you angry, elated, excited, uh, you need to pump the brakes and start to check yourself a little bit. There's a brilliant quote that I think is, is becoming kind of a mantra for me in this day and age. I think it was a filmmaker. I wish I could think of his name. He said it. But he said that tyranny is the deliberate removal of nuance. And so we need to be a people who seek the opposite of tyranny. And therefore, we need to be a people who seek as much nuance as possible. And I think that nuance comes when we are dialoguing with people who are different from us. And if you live in a part of the country where you cannot necessarily dialogue with people different from you, then at least reading voices that are different from you, you need to you know, not only be consume the very best of the opposing viewpoints by all means. I'm not saying if you are a liberal and you're mostly reading if you subscribe to the New York Times every day or something like that, uh, I'm not saying that you should immediately start reading Breitbart and, and granting it credibility. But I am saying you should be dipping into the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal. You should be reading The Economist, the very best thoughts. And you shouldn't only be reading old white guys, whether they're liberal or conservative either. There's plenty of, of, of great outlets that are, are wholly dedicated to or, or at least giving a ton of platform to, to marginalized voices, whether they're um, non-white folks, LGBT folks, et cetera. And I think that if we incorporate more of that media into our diets, specifically off the grid, quote unquote, like we've been saying, in printed formats, then you're going to be getting a higher quality consumption of media diet, but you're also going to be spending less time in front of a screen, which we all need, and you're going to be uh, supporting good journalism anyways. I know that sounds like a as self quite an uh, advertisement there, Josh. Yeah, for, 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 what is that? Yeah, that that seems to be our our main problem is we we are so unconsciously just calcifying our our own viewpoints, our own rigidity through a constant cycle of 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 outrage. And you don't have to agree with these opposing voices, but I hope that we can all dive into as much nuances as we possibly can. Give us like three or four media outlets on the left, in the center, and on the right that people could check out and use to sort of fill in their diet if they're a little deficient. You know, there might be some people who read left and right and don't read anything that's in the center. Uh, Just so give us like three or four from each category that have real reporting staff that take their work seriously. They have checks and balances. And yes, they have a perspective, but... If you sort of fan out among these sources, you're in really good shape in terms of knowing what's actually happening in the world. Okay. So I will, yeah, I will give you three or four from the left, the center, and the right. But I want to say up top that these are all organizations that I consider to do reliable, objective news reporting. And if they have any opinion, quote unquote, it is relegated to you know, clearly marked pieces of analysis or, or editorial board content. So on the right, the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, National Review, in the center, USA Today. It, go to the iOS store, Android store on your phone and download the Associated Press's news app Okay, and turn on the alerts, you know, for AP. And they... Reading wire stories is is some of the most bleeding edge raw news that that you can get. Right, and they're just the facts. A source, they're a source that newspapers across the country, including my own, rely upon. Uh, and it can be as breaking as you know a one or two sentence story, but it is it is very you're getting very unfiltered news, especially right in the wake of of an incident. And they don't have an editorial board, and it tends to be very. Uh, what should I, how, how can I phrase this? Um, utilitarian reporting that that uh, has to go and appear in so many myriad publications that would you know have editorial boards that lean both right and left. That I, I think it does tend to come from a very inherently uh, centrist or, or objective 
point of view, as, as do all the publications that I, I recommended. But I mean, it's, it's one publication that's absent of, of any editorial board at all. The left, the New York Times, Vox, the New Yorker. Washington Post and New York Magazine. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> you, like, you like New York Mag? I, I just like reading Andrew Sullivan. And so actually he's conservative. So I don't read any of the regular New York mag stuff. I just read his stuff. So he, he's one of my, um, right leaner. He's kind of a weird mishmash, but he's one of my generally speaking right leaner, uh, authors that I like. Huge thanks to Josh Hafner for being on the show this week, man. What a great resource to think about news diet if you want to reach him online, you can find him on Twitter at Josh Hafner, H-A-F-N-E-R. Also, you can go to usatoday.com, search his name, and you'll find all of the stuff that he writes for them these days. Remember, I'd love feedback on this new format, this edited, more produced version, and then the full unedited option for those who want a deeper dive with the guest. Um, so please let me know. Twitter on Facebook in the Depolarized Podcast discussion group or email me at depolarizedpodcast at gmail.com. We have a Patreon. If you'd like to support this show financially, you can do so. Depolarizedpodcast.com has a become a patron button or patreon.com slash depolarize. Don't forget Reconstruct, my co-hosted podcast with John Raines about theology, doubt, and faith is out now. We've got a few episodes already going. Science Mike told us his story of deconstruction and reconstruction yesterday. And today we have a whole episode up of John and I using that as a launch board for our own conversation about God and language and a bunch of other stuff that came up in Mike's conversation. So for those of you who are more theologically inclined, I think you might like it. Check it out. Reconstruct podcast. Dot com or search your podcast app. And we'll see you next week with an incredible guest, Ravi Iyer from civilpolitics.org and yourmorals.org. He's going to be talking with us about moral foundations theory, which is basically that book, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt that I have talked about so much. But Ravi is an actual academic professional on social and moral psychology. So I'm so pumped. That's going to be some serious content and really educational and I think just so clarifying. So look forward to that next week. Thank you guys so much.